Yo, what up? This is Dart Adams. This is episode 75 of Dart Against Humanity. This is the final episode of season four. Um, the previous episode, I titled it Okazeme. Okazeme is a fighting game term, and it refers to what happens when you pressure your opponent when they're getting up from being knocked down. And um, typically what happens is, is you're pressuring your opponent. You're trying to like do something they call 50-50s or mix-ups in order to keep them at a disadvantage so they cannot get back in the game so you continue the assault or the pressure. Now, I use that term to describe what was happening for people online after feeling the grief or the loss of um, Kobe Bryant, but also dealing with the weird changing world of online, real-time social media and how people police your actions and how everybody was dealing with grief differently. Some people were being extremely narcissistic. So it just felt, and then this like this attack, this constant impetus or this constant, you know, thing happening. It was just like ongoing. It was relentless. So I kind of used that term to the, uh, describe that. Now, this week, the episode is uh, named Abare. For those who are unfamiliar with this term, uh, it deals with a specific character's ability to deal a, some, uh, uh, amount of damage from like random hits and like exchanges. So going back and forth with an opponent. Because the idea is that there's times when you're in a fighting game, depending on who your opponent is, what the matchup is, that you're at a disadvantage. So you fighting, going back and forth with them and trading, even if you are at a disadvantage, this is this concept means that you're still able to come out on top in the exchange because of the high amount of damage you can deal. Or if you're at a, a frame disadvantage. Now, when you play fighting games, one of the things that ends up happening is you uh, study the frame data. Some attacks are faster. Some responses or blocks leave you open. And the attack or the input that happens next from your opponent, that affects how you are able to either uh, block, take damage, what have you. So basically the concept is deals with you being able to come out on top even when you're at a disadvantage. Whether it be through damage or your attacks or you just being a slower character or responding slower, but still being able to come on, on top and survive. Now, what does that have to do with this particular episode? So here's the thing. I usually record these episodes at midnight. Immediately. Why? Because I usually do that because I have a full week leading up to the next episode. And if I record an episode early, midnight here, that means that it's up and running by the time uh, people have their commutes in Europe or the UK. And also, 
I get all those all those numbers, but then I also get the numbers from whoever stateside picks it up when they go on their commute because there's a what five hour time difference. Now, if I'm doing these episodes week after week after week, so I have that Friday to that next Friday, it makes sense. I want to record the episode as soon as possible. However, if I'm recording that particular episode and it's the last episode of the season, it's no longer running from one week to one week before it's replaced by a new episode. It's running from whenever I record it until the next episode of the next season. Now, as you know, I take breaks between seasons. The next season of Dart Against Humanity, season five, isn't scheduled to start until May 1st, 2020. So this episode is going to run and get all the numbers. And when you have an episode at the end of a season, that episode does the biggest numbers, regardless of anything. It usually does hundreds of more um, listens than the episode before it, regardless of what, because it's the longest running episode. It's the episode for some odd reason people um, listen to. It's the same way like season. My first ever episode has the most listens of any other episode I've ever recorded a Dart Against Humanity. And this is 75 as a disgusting amount of listens. Even people who haven't listened past like episode five, that episode has been listened to. It's insane. And I'm not talking about just like on these uh, uh, different uh, podcast outlets that are uh, provided by Anchor. I'm talking. um, So this is also up on uh, SoundCloud, Mixcloud, anything you could imagine going across. Uh. Audio Mac, that episode, when you gather up all the listens, it has a disgusting amount of listens. So it's the same premise behind this, right? Now, when we think about time, if I'm not recording the episode at midnight and I'm recording it later, that changes the entire dynamic of the episode. Perfect example. I'm recording this episode now, uh, like between 2.45 and 3 a.m. 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time is midnight on the West Coast. That's when Netflix automatically changes over. And the new episodes that are available on Netflix, you can actually check out at 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Moreover, if you put out a film... And have it release. And say the release date is a Friday. Depending on how in demand it is. Movie theaters run it early starting 7 a.m. So for me. I can record this podcast episode. Have the new whatever on Netflix just hit. Watch that. And then from my phone. Buy a. A early bird matinee ticket to whatever new movie drop this week is going to be um birds of prey and then i walk 15 minutes from my apartment to the um movie theater which is in um right across from 
Boston Public Garden, which is connected to um, Boston Common, the Boston Common Movie Theater, watch Birds of Prey, and then come back home that 15 minutes. And I done had a full ass day. And when I come out of the movie theater, I look and I see the numbers for the podcast. So I get to do all this in a short amount of time. And it's more conducive to what I'm doing as opposed to starting at midnight. So it's cool for me. Now, um, the last thing that happened that anybody really wanted to talk about this week. It was weird for me because I didn't pay attention to uh, the Grammys or the BAFTA Awards or the Golden Globes or whatever the fuck. Um, but, and then, of course, the Super Bowl, didn't re- I watched it, didn't really care. But the big story was, in my space, was um, Billie Eilish saying these things about rap music. And the ripple effect and the reaction that it got. This bothered me for two main reasons. One, who cares about her opinion about something she's not an expert in or knowledgeable about? Why should anyone care? Why should anybody get their panties in a bunch? Why should anybody get upset? Why should anybody lead any credence to it? Why should anyone care? You figure people will be able to look through it, look past it, and brush it to the side. Whatever. Consider the source. Secondly, and I think, actually not secondly, I think this is the most important part. Why ask her these questions? Why? What is the point? What is the purpose of asking her any of these questions? What, what answer did you expect to get? What was the motivations behind asking her anything along this vein? Unless it was specifically for the purpose of riling everybody up, stoking all these things after what happened at the Grammys. Because um, Craig Jenkins actually said that after the Grammys, he fully expected that somebody was going to do this. And then she was going to give an answer like this. And then this was going to start. And then everybody was going to jump out the woodwork you know, pop out the bushes, waiting to light that ass up, what have you. Now, I ain't paid close attention because I don't care. These are not things I care about. For the most part, I think the things I've been doing are um, researching for two books, uh, going back and forth with a literary agent about trying to get this project going so I can get in advance and uh, you know, help and and get my life kick started going into 45, blah, 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 other stuff. Getting into lecturing. A whole bunch of other stuff. That's where my focus lies. Not in this petty bullshit happening over here. I'm, again, I'm old. I don't care. Now, my boy um, FWMJ turned 39 yesterday. And what that did was it made me kind of reminisce on our on our uh, paths crossing. And it also related to like my career, my recent career. I'm going to expound right. Back in 99, 2000, I began lurking on OK Player. 
was brand new. I lurk. I don't get an account. I'm kind of intimidated by the people that are on the on the site. They seem to know each other. They have this uh, language of their own. They know a lot about music, you know, and I just feel like it's better if I do the whole um, Beyonder thing, view their universe through a pinhole and don't get involved. Later on, it goes from some Beyonder shit to, to some um, watch who to watcher type shit where I'm there in the background, but I'm not interfering. I'm there, but they don't see me as opposed to being on some like voyeur shit, which is what the Beyonder was. Watch who the watcher is the, is the next level. I'm here. I'm just not, you know, it's like being the background person in a TV show. No, they're there every season. You know them, you recognize them, but they don't get lines. Until like season three or four, all of a sudden that motherfucker got lines. Like the curly-headed girl, black girl on um, Girl Meets World. Oh, she got lines this episode. Some of you get that reference. Some of you absolutely like, what the fuck is he talking about? It's for those that get the reference. I am multitudes, you know what I'm saying? You can't, you can't fence me in, you can't box me in, you can't try to figure out, hey, dart is this. I, I do it all. Anyways, what I'm saying is, move up t- around 2004, 2005, uh, FWMJ, you know, he's on OK Player. He has a site called Rappers I Know. Through Rappers I Know, I'm introduced to a guy, a rapper, several rappers, uh, MCs, artists, one of them being J Electronica. Now, I end up being the um, blogging class of 2006-2007. On allhiphop.com is when I finally get my first piece posted via Sycamore. August 26, 2006. 2007, I start my own blog site after uh, doing blogs on um, all hip-hop between August and, and December. January 1st, 2007, I do my first post on um, Poison's Paragraphs. January 1st, 2010, I do my final post on Poison's Paragraphs. And then I tell everybody... After this final post, I'm going to reveal myself, my face, because those of you that don't know, I used to post anonymously. I used the picture of um, Luke Cage from, I think, New Avengers 38 or 28. Or, no, New Avengers 22, I think. One of them. It's a picture of Luke Cage. It looked like me. I went to the movie. I went to the uh, I told the story before I went to uh, Newberry Comics and this little girl is looking at the cover of that issue and then looks at me and then someone else looks at the cover and looks at me and they start laughing and I look at it and I'm like okay that face looks kind of like mine that's kind of my color and that's exactly how my facial hair looks at this time so I'm gonna start using that as my picture and the guys looks kind of mad so it kind of went along with the voice that I was using when I wrote my pieces on um Poisonous Paragraphs. And again, back in the days, if you posted anonymously, a lot of people thought that 
you were old, fat, and ugly. And if you wrote in the voice of like a black person, then you were actually, you know, a white guy lying and trying to pass. But when I actually did finally show up, and then also there was a rumor that I was a, a group of people as opposed to one person. So when I did finally show up and people actually saw my face, they were like, oh, shit. Oh, you're a real person. And you're actually the guy who wrote all that stuff. You do know about all these different subjects. 2010, uh, around March, I get hit up by FWMJ. He tells me he's going to a blogger conference in um, D.C. I believe it's called If I Ruled the Blogosphere. It was going to be a bus boys and poets. He's like, yo, um, they wanted to bring me. Um, and they were talking about what this uh, panel is going to be about and who they're going to bring on. He's like, how come you ain't called Dart Adams? He didn't have to do this. It's like everything you're talking about falls in line with Dart and all the people you're bringing. They'll all agree that this man should be there. He's been a part of all of this. So they asked, you know, Dallas Penn, Mecca Two Dope Boys, Odyssey, and these other cats on the panel and other contributors. And they're like, yeah, Dart definitely should be there. He's a part of all of this. So they're like, yeah, bring him. Frank takes it on himself to be like, yo, you're coming. Nobody's seen my face outside of Boston. He brings me to New York when he was still living there. This is April 2010. I didn't have a cell phone back then. If you came to find me in Boston, you had to find somebody who knew me. They would hit me up and then they like meet him here. They turn around. I'd appear out of nowhere like a fucking state farm agent on a corner or on a street in Boston. And they're like, oh, shit, you're real. I didn't have a fucking cell phone. My brother... Uh, before I went to Baltimore, he uh, put, uh, had me on his family plan. He got me an LG Shine 2. That was my first cell phone, 2010. Before that, I like to be completely like, you can't get a hold of me. I just show up mysteriously. That LG Shine 2, I believe, had a 2 or 4 or something megapixel camera. And back in those days, you had um, TwitPic. So this is the only way I was able to take pictures or images. I show up at that conference. They record it. Someone asks me a question. They direct it to me. I get up on stage. I have headphones on. Because I brought my own brother's uh, iPod. His iPod Classic. I think it was 60 megs. Or 60 gigs. 60 gigs. And... I started, I go on a rant. Now I sit my ass down. I think I was 40 pounds heavier than I am now too. So that's another thing. And so that's the first time anybody actually saw me outside of Boston. That same uh, uh, weekend week, it's me, FWMJ, Danny Brown. Now mind you, when I met Frank, he said, come to Santos Party House. I get in the cab and come to Santos Party House. I walk out to Santos Party House before we go to Baltimore, before we go to Maryland. I mean, before we go to D.C. 
And the dude at the door is just like, hey, yo, you dark, come in. So I walk through this passage or whatever. Then I come out and just blaze is spinning. It's like, hey, yo, everybody say what up to Dart Adams. What? What? So I meet Frank and Danny Brown on that day and just blaze who had a camera crew following him around because he was doing the soundtrack for eight. The A-Team? The A-Team, I believe. That's what it was. Now, after Santos lets out, me, Frank, Danny, and Just Blaze go to a diner with some other people, some other friends. And me and Just and, and Danny and Frank have some of the nerdiest conversations in, in the world about Shokasugi, um... Uh, the TV show Auto Man, all this other shit. I knew Just Blaze was the man when they charged his phone at the restaurant. I was like, what? Now, to give you an idea how long ago this was, Just Blaze was talking about how the iPad hadn't come out yet, but Apple sent him an iPad. But when they asked him how it was and how he's enjoying it, he said that I haven't got it yet. And I was like, all right, we'll, ship, we'll immediately ship you one because I guess it got lost. As he's getting the next one shipped, he finds it. So just Blaze had, I believe he had two iPads before anyone had any. And like it was going to be released like in the next three or four days. Now. Again, we get to Baltimore. I mean, Baltimore. We get to DC days later. We're staying at um with Jay Benock at the um the hip hop house of uh, George Washington University because he he ran um the radio station the radio station there and he did his um thesis about like hip hop in DC and then it like was a continuing thing. It became like an audio podcast. That was actually hosted on Rappers I Know, had a few episodes featuring like the guys from Seven Heads, you know, Asheru and um, Unspoken Herd, you know, it's like some other cats. Um, Koyaki, uh, actually very impressive, um, did, a, did a whole segment with cats from um, uh, Low Budget. Now, while there... Frank is sitting on the couch with his own um, MacBook and he shows me, he's like, yo, I want to show you something. He tells me, of course, about in the UK, there was this uh, beat culture uh, community and they did beat battles. I, kind of, I knew about them. Lewis Den. But he tells me that there's a dude out there named Jay Large who manages a bunch of these producers and about eight to ten of them are going to be down with his site. He's going to sister spinoff site of rappers I know called Producers I Know. He shows me the site that he's designing and is going to go up. Like in days. But what he also shows me is like it's also an association with this. He shows me a band camp page that went up the month before that nobody really knows about. And he had designed like... 
uploaded the stuff, had the artwork, everything going, and it had all these producers and all their beats already up. Now, I didn't have um, much going on in that uh, department, but I believe I either had just started or was about to start um, the Scrunch Face Show. I think I might have already it might have already began. The Scrunch Face Show was in its infancy, was like brand new in early 2010. So I was like, yo, send me some folders of them beats. I play them on the show. So that started my relationship there. Six months later, Jay Large hits me and he's like, yo, um, I'm not going to be uh, managing producers anymore or doing this. I'm going to go into fitness. Huh? Yeah. I'm going to go into training and fitness. So do you know anybody to be interested in taking operations of the site over? Producers I know. And I'm like, fuck it, I'll do it. So I think October 12th, 2010 is when I actually take over full operations of producers I know. They hand me the keys. I have the site. I have access to the... um. The band camp and I'm in charge of uh, doing whatever for the producers, trying to get them placements and stuff like that. That was a disaster. Because I realized how many different hats that you have to wear and how important communication is and how you shouldn't do anything without the consent of the producers and how different producers have to be handled. And I hate the term handled, but I'm saying because you're dealing with different personalities and different people need different things. And if you're not in constant communication with them or talking to them on the phone, and I didn't really have a phone like that, you know, so I couldn't be available and the time difference, shit happens. Everybody has their different quirks. Everybody has their different um, preferences. So needless to say, uh, I lost two producers. It's been 10 years, you know, so I can say it. I lost two producers. One was just like, yeah, I'm going to go fuck with somebody else. uh, Take my shit off the site. I'm like, yeah, cool. No problem. And the other one I lost because I did something that we did, we had crossed wires and they didn't like. So they were like, yo, I want to take my shit off the site. I'm like, oh, cool. To, to. I get it. It was my fuck up. So lost them. But what I realized was, um, Dart, you have your own um, relationships. You have people you're in direct contact with and you need to you need to figure out how better to communicate with people and you have to step up and you have to be more. This isn't just some fly-by-night shit that you could be laissez-faire with. You have to actually use your whole ass. So everything that happened to me that ended up being something that I fucked up at, I made me better because I realized I learned from my mistakes rather than being down. And the thing is in real-time social media, this era, you can immediately pivot. I did a I did I did some things that like a lot of y'all do not remember 
But there was an instance where there was a song that was recorded in um, D.C. between uh, there was a song between. Uh, it was a song between Odyssey and Danny Brown back in the days. It was recorded. We were running it. It was an exclusive. I even played it on the episode of the um the Scrunch Face show. What ends up happening is Danny Brown records a song with uh Black Milk later for the um Black and Brown EP, and he uses the same verses on this song, but this song's everywhere because it's on an official release or what have you. So what happens is we ultimately just pull Kirby. But before that, I had released it, but then I deleted it. Because like I hit up, nah, pull it. Cool. I pull it. It was up for about 30 minutes. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. But the thing is that I learned that I didn't need to try to put something out to make a name for myself or put myself out there in order to gain notoriety. I could just be consistent and have that do it for me. So it was all these lessons that I learned. And then I realized that, hey, if I don't have direct um relationships with these artists, from, with these producers from the UK or what have you, if they find a better, um, if they find a better uh, label situation or management situation, don't hold them back. I learned that. But if you can help out somebody, do it. So I started putting on producers from local producers and producers international producers I knew nationally. Um, I put on cats like Shag and Danny Brown. I mean, Dan, uh, D-Man, you know, uh, M. Slago, the cats that I built a rela- built a relationship with. Um, and then I started putting out those B tapes. But before that, there was Gadget who was putting out beat tapes and I was helping him out with those. Uh, he was doing like uh, themed beat tapes. So it's like the Beat Nuts beat tape. And stuff like that. Then there were like the producers from um, the DMV, Soulful. Uh, he did uh, mumble, dr- m- mumble Sauce and Drum Breaks. I did a couple of joints with... Um, Proverb, Proverb the Wise. I did some joints with him. I did a whole bunch of work with a whole bunch of different cats. Um, and I learned more and more as I went. I did, you know, uh, uh entire beat tape with the cats that, like, I worked with. St. Mike. St. Mike did a beat tape using um beatmaker an app on his um iPod touch and I was like yo let's do an entire like let's do an entire uh release based on that and I A&R'd it I picked what beat should have the instrumentals I picked what beats should have an artist on it 
I even picked what artists should do what beat. So I learned I was like A&Ring and coming up with project ideas and everything during that time. So I got more and more and more um, adept at it. People would send me beat folders and trust me to name the beats, sequence the beats, pick what beat should be on the, on how and how long the beat should be and then submit them. And then they would get placements off of them or they would just turn into a beat tape entirely. And then they would get placements based off that beat tape. So I became more and I became known more and more for that. And, you know, eventually what happens is in 2015, I decide, hey, I'm going to do a five year anniversary joint for um, my time at Producers I Know. I originally conceived back in 2013, I conceived this idea. I wanted to do a, a, an 80s beat tape. The 80s beat tape was supposed to be this was my grand idea. I'm going to do uh, five subgenres of 80s music. British synth pop. I wanted to do um, like funk, R&B. And like I had all these different subgenres. Of like um, the Minneapolis sound, all this stuff. And I was like, all right, I figured out what songs or what. And I'm going to submit them. To certain producers that I think will body each song. So in my head, I have this song. And I know this person to kill it. This person to kill it. This person to kill this. This person to kill this. So I'm already in my head kind of anticipated what they would do with a certain sample or a certain song, which I then, this is a huge lesson that I learned. Don't ever fucking do that. Don't try to anticipate what somebody's going to do with a sample source. Never do that because you have no idea what they do or won't do with a sample source. You have no idea if they'll even like the beat of the song, you have no idea if they'll feel it because there's this thing in your head that you figure, oh, I know what I'm doing. I'm nice with this when you suggest sample sources for people. So I kind of fucked up and got in my own head where I was like, I'm so good at this that I know who would kill what. So I'm just going to give you this song. And I know when you send it back, it's going to be what I expect it to be. So I did this with about 25 producers. Expecting to get back 25, 30 joints in the span of a week. And I was going to have something that I could like work from. Castle like, yo, I'm not feeling this joint. Uh, this shit is all over the place. I can't really catch it. I'm busy. What have you? Da, 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 da. I'm not into it. Um, sorry, I'm working on this. I'm touring. I'm doing this. I'm like, okay. But... I did get of the 25 to 30 cats that I sent beats to, I got 10 cats. No, I got 12 cats, 12 or 13 cats send me flips of those 12 or 13 cats that send me flips, 10 of them 
were something that were like worthy of, you know what? This is kind of dope. But I was so defeated from that thing that I tried to do that I aimed so high for that I just left those 10 beats in a folder for years. Then when the fifth anniversary of Producers I Know came around, I went back to that folder from 2013 and went back and listened to those beats. And then I was like, if I sequence this right, this will make a good ass beat tape for the fifth anniversary of Producers I Know. So I did that. And I put out the 80s beat tape. I put it up. I put... And um, the beats that people like the most, I put on SoundCloud. And those beats did really well on SoundCloud. To the point where I get a fucking email and DM from Fat Beats. Yo, we want to put that out. Now, the idea I had for the original um, 80s beat tape was to get a deal with, uh, with a label. Not necessarily Fat Beats, but... A label period and get distribution or what have you. And when Fat Beats was interested in that, I looked at it, I was like, that's this ain't mm-mm. This ain't the shit that I want to put out. So I was like, what do I do? I used my leverage. I went back to the band camp and I named the source for each beat. I know that doing that meant that they couldn't put that out now. So they're like, yo, you put the source up for each beat. Like the, the, this flip, the, this flip, the, this flip, the, this flip. I was like, yeah, you don't want that. I got this, 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 and this though. And they're like, let me hear something. That's how I got, um, the deal with, uh, fat beats in 2015 and started the label. And I started putting out beat tapes by um, producers mainly from Detroit because that was where, like, a lot of my um, relationships were forged. And um, in 2000, because we're coming out of a... There was a site that I did between 2009-2010 called... um, I haven't talked about it too much at all. Um, Maybe in later in season five. um, Blogger House. And Blogger House was supposed to be... At one point, after we did the site, we were going to do a full uh, boutique in-house thing. One wing was going to be management. Another wing was going to be a label. You know, I was going to do A&R and production management and all the other stuff. Uh, We were going to have somebody like do artist management, stuff like that. And we were just going to have our own label. Because we had gotten acts signed to different labels. And it started with um, Hoslow's deal with uh, Mellow Music Group. And then getting um, uh, the first group Apollo Brown had with DJ Soko and Journalist. The left signed to Mellow in 2010. So between that time, I was like working with different artists, consulting, doing... um, A&R work that didn't get credited between 2010 and 2015 for multiple labels and multiple artists. I didn't mind. 
I got paid some money, what have you, but, you know, I really should have been getting credit. But when DJ Soko, who was in the group The Left in 2010 that got signed, got his deal with Fat Beats for Left to Center, he brings me on as lead A&R and head consultant consigliere for his for his um for his uh label deal. I had my label deal with Fat Beats for producers I know. So I'm turning 40. I kind of I kind of quit journalism and thrown myself into being the guy who ha- who had meetings and had phone calls and, and you know had uh one position at one label and my own label on the other side. I'm putting out I'm putting out cassettes. I'm putting out CDs. I'm, I'm getting calls from produce um, from producers and artists and all this other shit. So like, I'm the industry guy. Right when I turned forty, DJ Soko puts out his Domino Effect album, the first project that has my name on it as an A and R. So I'm turning 40. I feel like, you know, I'm doing it. And then now I also have my own label. I got a Discogs page now. You know, I feel like I'm moving up in the world. I'm finally getting it done. And there's five years before I finally, you know, took over producers I know. And I'm finally getting people signed to deals. And I'm actually, you know, getting my foot in the door. And I'm writing liner notes for people. Fast forward to 2010. I just wrote the liner notes for um, Camino 84's the all new Camino 84. Really believe in him and his art and his music. Um, I wrote this thing on Twitter explaining how one of the things that led me to writing liner notes was being a kid reading them, reading all these jazz albums, soul album, funk album liner notes, and then me discovering Nat Hentoff through these um, jazz album liner notes. And then stumbling across um, the Free Will and Bob Dylan album. Now, I didn't know it at the time, but the Free Will and Bob Dylan album predates the LP era. The LP era starts in 1964. Free Will and Bob Dylan album came out in 1963. Uh, Bob Dylan's first album is, I believe, just Bob Dylan. But Free Will and Bob Dylan is the album that established his um, rise. His career trajectory begins off of Free Will and Bob Dylan and how he was framed and seen by the general public and the media before his um, rise, his meteoric rise beginning in 1964 begins with Nat Hentoff's depiction of him and, ex- and, 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 and framing of his artwork and his everything, his essence, in the liner notes on the back of the Free Will and Bob Dylan. And also, you pair that with the cover. The cover is Bob Dylan walking down the street with his girlfriend as it's with snow on the ground. That gives you a completely different idea of who this guy is. And the other thing about Free Will and Bob Dylan you have to understand is that it's not an album of originals. I believe there are two songs that he wrote Himself, the original, and everything else is like a cover or, or a new rendition. But those two songs, again, changed everything. And those liner notes in that Hentoff wrote changed everything. And I 
wanted to be able to be that person who framed and created the conversation around art and gave people that idea of what an art, who an artist is. So I began um, doing things where I would write the copy, the promotional copy for artists' albums, their singles, their band camps, their sound clouds, their, um, the emails that they sent out to labels and people to read. I wrote those. The artist bios, I wrote those. There are so many independent albums between 2008, 9, all the way up to like, maybe like 2017, 2018, where I wrote all of those. And I kind and the thing is that like, I got so used to doing it by the time I had my label deal that I wrote all of them for uh, producers I know and um, LOC. Left to center. So uh, DJ Soko's stuff, um, Nolan the Ninja, you know, I did all that. And then when you would go to like different sites like Fat Beats or, or um, UGHH when it existed and all those other things, when you would look at the description for the album, I wrote all that. And I realized the importance of framing art from like being a historian and reading liner notes and what have you. So I've written again, I've written liner notes for uh, quite a few records. I wrote, wrote a bunch of them for um, House Shoes um, records um, on uh, Street Corner Music. Haven't done it lately. I haven't had to. Uh, I wrote one back in the days for uh, Count Bass D for the re-release of... Um, one of his projects. I wrote. Let's see which one was that? I'm in my room. Uh, which one? Oh, Dwight Spitz. So I wrote the liner notes for Dwight Spitz. Um, I wrote the liners. If you can't find it, like in the packaging, you gotta go to the um the Bandcamp. Is there? I wrote the liner for, uh, of course, DJ Soko's uh, Domino Effect. You can find that on Bandcamp. I wrote the liner notes for. See, let me sit down. I'm in my room. Okay, so the record with my name on it, that's 2016, Nolan and Ninja Heart. I didn't write liners for that one. I have so many copies of this shit. That's the beauty of owning the label. I believe I wrote the liner notes for Drugs, Drug Beats the Gift, which is the Gift Volume 10 on um, Street Corner Music. I wrote those liner notes. I was known as Sleevey Wonder. I wrote the liner notes for uh, the Gift Volume 7 House Shoes. 
I wrote the liner notes for The Gift Volume 6, Cream of Beats. I have to tell you how insane it is when you think about it and go back and just realize like, yo, there's something with my name on it. Like, do you, do you understand what it means to have your name on something? And for me, it meant more because my mom, uh, when she was still alive, didn't fully understand what it is I did. And it's kind of... um to explain for people who let's say you had immigrant parents, right? That don't fully understand what like creative endeavors, pursues pursuits actually mean for their kids because they only have the idea that in their mind that yo, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to do X, Y, and Z, you know, something that I know that you're going to be successful at, like being a comedian or artist or a journalist or an A&R, what the, what is that, you know? So my mom, she didn't fully get me being in anything creative, writing, you know, I'm like, I want to write comic books. Is that even something people do? I want to be an A&R. What the fuck is that? You know, what do you do? I work with people at record labels and no, do anybody I know. No, it's independent. It's hip hop. You try to explain that to a fucking 60 year old woman. They don't get it. You know, they don't understand. Like, no, the the beats are the beat beats, you know, uploaded to Bandcamp and I download them and I sequence like they don't understand the importance of that or framing. I wrote this. I point to a website and you see words it's like who the fuck's going to read that so i spent the last 10 years getting here to now i have a book out with my name on it trying to get another book out trying to get that launched writing two other ones uh, about to get into like lecturing normally might travel for that. I have, um, the book is it right now at two different schools, uh, Johnson C. Smith and, um, South Carolina and at Butler university in Indiana Try is uh, about to be in a couple of more schools, uh, NYU, hopefully some other spots, but I want to have more books following this up. In the process of writing two and researching another one. So hopefully by the time this podcast returns, May 1st, 2020, I'll be in an elevated space and I'll have more stories to tell. But also, something you should know. Season five is going to be this podcast's final season. It's going to encompass episodes 76 to 100. And then at 100, it's a wrap. I don't even know if season five is going to be the same type of uh, format where I'm talking into my um, phone. I might have guests. I might do something different like I do with um, like I do with my other podcast. 
uh, with uh, for Boston, the Boston Legends podcast, which I'm actually going to really launch into this spring. But again, season five is going to be the final season of um, Dart Against Humanity. Uh, just do me a couple of favors before I end this episode because I'm already running longer. But it doesn't really matter because, again, this is the final episode of the season. So it could be as long as whatever. It's not like I'm going to have to put up another episode next week. I'm on hiatus. If you bought... The Book of Dart from Amazon. Please do me a favor and give me a five star rating for the book. It goes a long way. It's an independent book. Nobody wrote anything about me. Nobody posted me on any lists. Nobody at any site or outlet wrote about the rec- wrote about the album. I mean, wrote about the book album. Wrote about the book. But it sold and people enjoyed it. People stopped me on the street and, 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 and t- want to talk about specific chapters, which I love. Um, so please review the book. Give it five stars. Hopefully by the time we come back, it has like 20, at least 20 uh, reviews from customers. That goes a long way. There are books that have sold Way more than mine that don't even have as many reviews or five-star reviews as mine already has, which is nuts from customers. But this is how we vote. So if you bought it, please do that. Um, If you listen to Dart Against Humanity on uh, an outlet that I may not know about, please uh, tweet me at at dart underscore Adams and tell me where you listen to the podcast or email me at um, poisonousparagraphs at gmail.com and tell me where you listen to or how you listen to Dart Against Humanity wherever in the world you listen to it because I want to be able to um, give shine to all those different um, podcast distributors that I may not post when I post it on Twitter. I'd like for you to, um, if you haven't already, go to iTunes. I think I have like 60-something, but go to iTunes and give Dart Against Humanity uh, um, a full star rating and do a short uh, review or what have you, if you can. I think I'm in somewhere like 36 different podcast distributors globally. But it'll go a long way because I like to, even for my last season, be on Deezer and I'm knocking on the door, Luminary. I want this podcast to be in as many places as possible, even before it goes out, because the last season is going to be 25 episodes. 25 episodes is going to take four months. Plus. If I do an episode a week. So don't be sad that it's going to be the final season because I'm going to be, no, actually 25 episodes is like six months. Math. Yeah, fam. If it starts in May, then it's going to run all the way until like October. Yeah. Okay. 
So we got time. So even if the podcast is about to end, it's going to change everything. And all this really matters for one other reason. This dictates to um, Anchor that I should get more opportunities in terms of sponsorship. A lot of people have been hitting me up about Anchor and their sponsors, and they're not getting the sponsors that they used to. At one point last season, I had three sponsors at once. I've had the same sponsor all season, and I'm getting all my spawn money from this one sponsor. And I'm sure you know who that sponsor is because it's at the beginning of every episode. Sure, I can use it for lunch money. But, you know, even though I'm just talking into a phone, this is work, B. Not everybody can do this shit. You think just everybody could just talk into a phone. Public speaking is, is, is it's a lot. There are a lot of people that, you know, have a podcast and go into a studio and record it. And that shit ain't worth, you know, even a friend don't want to hear it, you know. In the age of real-time social media and, and live streaming, everybody ain't compelling. And I got to tell you, I don't like hearing myself talk. So I'm not saying that I'm great at this either. But, bitch, I'm trying. Now, um, all right, I'm about to be out of here. So, it's almost 4 a.m., going to watch whatever the hell is on Netflix, chill until about 6.15, 6.30, go to movie theater and see Margot Robbie and, and a whole bunch of other women, you know, kick people's asses. And hopefully this is a good DCEU film. I kind of feel like it's going to be good. Because I've heard other people that actually whose opinions I respect say that they like it. Anyways, I'm out. Back in May. Do what I had said. One.